Um, we are going to start today's message in John chapter 20. In fact, we're going to do most of today's message from John chapter 20. As Hunter said 2,000 years ago, and actually uh, it's probably right around 1,992 years ago, if you want the exact, uh, right around A.D. 30, most Bible scholars believe, is when Jesus rose from the dead on a day in the Jewish calendar known as Nisan. Nisan is the first month on the Jewish calendar, the 16th or the 17th. In fact, one Bible scholar who I was reading uh, believes it was actually April 7th, A.D. 30. So if you want to know, uh, have a date on it. I can't guarantee you that's the right date, but it's right around that time. Uh, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, rose from the dead. Most of you are probably familiar with the story. He was crucified, nailed to a cross, and as this happened, his followers, his disciples, were devastated. They were heartbroken. The one who they looked to, the one who they loved, the one who they cared for, not only was dead, but had just suffered a brutal, horrifying, torturous, excruciating death publicly in front of everyone. They were at a very low point on Easter Sunday 2,000 years ago. And yet, there were a few women who came to the tomb where Jesus was. They came to anoint his body with spices. See, what they did, there was Jewish customs and how you were supposed to prepare a body for burial. But they couldn't perform these functions after Jesus died because he was buried just before the Sabbath. And the Jews were forbidden to do any work on the Sabbath. In fact, some Bible scholars believe there was two Sabbaths back to get back. There was a Friday Sabbath, the high Sabbath of the Passover, which was a special Sabbath, a special holiday, essentially. Uh, and then there was the regular Saturday Sabbath. And so for days, Jesus' body sat there unprepared for his death. And so finally on Sunday morning, they could come and do the work that needed to be done to the body. So they came to the grave, and we'll pick up the story in John chapter 20. It says, early on the first day of the week, early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. If you're not familiar, that's John. That's the author of this book. He was so humble, he didn't want to put his own name in the passage. But we know this is Peter and John, two of the disciples who were most close to Jesus, two of the three that spent the most time with him. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and she said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. The first reaction to the empty tomb was not a celebration. The first reaction to the empty tomb was not amazement and worship. The first reaction to the empty tomb was, oh no, what have they done? They wouldn't even let his body lie gracefully. Now, since we know the end of the story, this may seem like a foolish reaction, but this is a very human reaction. If we had been in the same situation as Mary Magdalene, I imagine we would have responded similarly. Verse 3, so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter's. John's humility ends very early, right? Uh, so just make sure everybody knows I'm faster than Pete. I love it. Respect. Uh, and he reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him, huffing and puffing, presumably. 
and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Jesus had told them this was going to happen. He had promised them this, but let's be honest, for them it was just a little too good to be true. They didn't understand. They didn't really comprehend everything that had to go into this. Verse 10, then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So first Mary Magdalene arrives at the tomb, sees it empty. She goes back and reports to Peter and John what she had seen. They run to the tomb. They discover Jesus' grave clothes, the strips of linen, there's the head cloth. And it says that John saw and believed. Verse 11, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. You feel how distraught she is. You can sense the concern in her voice. At this, verse 14, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. How amazing is it for you to have the thing that you're believing for standing right in front of you and not even realize that it's there? I wonder how many of us, God's already provided for us the thing that we're believing for, but in our doubt, in our emotions, we can't even realize what God set right in front of our face. Mary doesn't realize she's talking to Jesus. Verse 15, he asked her, woman, why are you crying? He repeats the same question of the angels. Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, which by the way, he kind of is the gardener. He's the one who created the garden. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. She's so focused on the task at hand. I have to take care of the body. This has to be done. This custom needs to be performed that she can't see what's really happening. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, all it took was for Jesus to call her name. I wonder this morning if Jesus is calling one of your names. I wonder this morning if there's someone in this room who doesn't know Jesus, who doesn't have relationship with Jesus, and for years and years he's been calling your name and you haven't heard it, but perhaps today would be the day that your ears catch the voice of Jesus. Jesus says, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, Hebrew would be rabbi. Verse 17, Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. One of the reasons, and there are many, why I believe in the resurrection is because 2,000 years ago, if you were manufacturing a story to convince people that something happened, this is not the way you would manufacture the story. You see, 2,000 years ago, the culture had very little respect for women. The culture had very little respect for the reports of women. Women didn't get education. Women were not considered very high. In fact, in Roman society, they were considered property. 
And so if you were concocting a story to convince a bunch of Jews and a bunch of Romans that Jesus had raised from the dead, you would not report that the first eyewitness to Jesus' resurrection was a woman, let alone a woman who everyone knew had once been a prostitute. This is not the way you would manufacture a story to convince people of a lie. This is, however, the way you would create a story if you wanted it to be the greatest story ever told. Jesus chose the first representative, the first messenger of the resurrection to be a woman. And not just any woman, a woman with a past. A woman who had been broken, but a woman of whom he said, she who has been forgiven much loves much. Mary Magdalene was given the honor, the role of being the first eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus and the first one to tell others that he had raised from the dead. However, just because Mary reported it didn't mean the men believed it. Verse 19, on the evening of the first day of the week, so the same day, Sunday night, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders... They are cowering in fear because they're afraid the same thing that happened to Jesus is going to happen to them. They had just seen their leader brutally crucified, and they think they're coming for us next. Forty days later, these people are going to turn over the world. Forty days later, the Holy Spirit's going to fill them, and they're going to spill out in the streets, and they're going to boldly proclaim the word of Jesus. But at this point, there's no boldness in this group. You see, it wasn't about the goodness of the disciples that caused the the gospel to spread. It was the goodness of the story, the goodness of what God had done, the goodness of the power of the Holy Spirit that caused it to spread. Verse 19, still, they were locked, had the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. This is, in comic book sense, Jesus just teleported right into the room, Right? The doors are locked. Nobody can get inside. They're cowering in fear. They're not opening the door for a lock. And so Jesus says, you think your locks are any good against me? And he appears in the room. Verse 20, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. You know, he had had nails through his hands, really through his wrist. The Greek word for hand includes the wrist. Uh, And he had a spear shoved into his side right after he died. And so Jesus shows them his scars. The disciples were overjoyed. When they saw the Lord. You know that word overjoyed appears numerous times in the Gospels. The first time it appears is early in the story when the Magi see the star over Bethlehem. They were overjoyed when they saw the sign of the Messiah. 33 years later, the disciples are overjoyed when they see the scars of the Messiah. They believed because of what they had seen. Verse 21, again Jesus said, peace be with you. Isn't it interesting that Jesus' first message after resurrecting to his followers was peace? Calm. It's it's okay. You don't have to cry anymore. You don't have to be afraid anymore. I speak peace over you, and he repeats it. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. We believe theologically this is the first salvation. That until Jesus had actually paid the price for sin after he had died and and gone into hell and defeated the enemy and taken the keys of sin and death, that salvation didn't exist, at least not the way that it exists for us. And so at this moment, Jesus breathes on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to live in them, to mark them as believers that if they were to die, they would spend eternity in heaven. Verse 21, he even says, if you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. If you do not forgive them, 
they're not forgiven. What's he doing? He's commissioning them to represent him. I'm giving you the same power and the same authority that I operated in, the same Holy Spirit to empower you who empowered me. Verse 20, now Thomas, also called Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but poor Thomas, don't you feel bad for Thomas? This man, if you don't know, Thomas is known for 2,000 years as doubting Thomas. Thomas has a bad day. Man, Thomas has one moment of weakness, and it has been carried out in his reputation for thousands of years. I also think it's funny that we don't have doubting Didymus, uh, which is his other name, which is more alliteration, but nobody knows Didymus, so we go with doubting Thomas. Uh, he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them this time. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them again and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. See, Jesus wasn't with the disciples when Thomas said, I need to put my fingers in his hands and put my hand in his side. Jesus only knew that because he's Jesus, because he's the Messiah, because he's God. He knew exactly what Thomas needed, and he spoke direct to what Thomas desired. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. When Thomas believed, he recognized who Jesus was. He got a revelation. This is my Lord. And then he makes a declaration that this is my God. Verse 29, that Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Would you pray with me for just a moment? Father God, we thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the opportunity to preach from John chapter 20 this morning as we see faith come to so many as they encounter Jesus. God, I pray that you would encourage us today through your word. God, I pray that if there's anyone here, the sound of my voice, anyone here on site or online who has not yet believed on Jesus the way Thomas did, who hasn't declared that Jesus is my Lord and my God, God, that before we are done today in these next 20 minutes, they would have that revelation for themselves. They would trust in Jesus for their salvation, for their eternity, as the sacrifice for their sins. We thank you for all that you've done and what you're going to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. Amen. When I was a kid, one of my favorite movies was Hook. I don't know how many of you guys saw this, but Robin Williams plays Peter Pan. But he plays an older Peter Pan, an older, a Peter Pan who left Neverland and came to Earth and became a boring businessman, right? And so through some, some series of events, he actually forgets that he's Peter Pan, and somehow he gets transported back to Neverland, and he doesn't realize who he is, and the Lost Boys don't realize who he is. In fact, at this point, only Tinkerbell realizes that he's Peter Pan. Uh, and there's a scene where the Lost Boys come to realize this is who he actually is. I want you to check this out. It's a very sh short clip.
So thank you for indulging my Gen X trip down memory lane. Uh, awesome, awesome movie. I don't know if Steven Spielberg was going for John chapter 20 as he uses this picture of them believing in the pan again. But I think it's a beautiful illustration of what the disciples are going through in John chapter 20. Man, little by little, they're touching Jesus. They're examining Jesus. They're starting to hope. Could it actually be him? They're starting to believe maybe it really is. I love the confession of the young boy. He says, oh, there you are, Peter. And as the one confesses faith in the pan, you see many run over to be with him. I think there's some power for us as believers That when one confesses faith, when one recognizes who Jesus is, we don't even know the impact it's going to have on the others around us, the people God is going to use us to draw to Jesus. It's an awesome picture, I believe, of John chapter 20. What I want to do today in the last few moments we have together is I want to share with you three reasons why I love the resurrection. Three reasons why this story is so powerful to me. It's so exciting to me. Three reasons I'm thrilled to get to share it with you this morning. I love the resurrection, number one, because it is wonderfully corporate yet intensely personal. The resurrection is wonderfully corporate. What do I mean by that? I mean it was seen by many. In fact, the apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthians starts shouting out eyewitnesses to the risen Lord. And you can read his list as he's listing, and man, he calls out specific individuals who saw Jesus alive. And then he gets to a point, he says, hey, at one point, Jesus appeared to 500. And so there's over 600 people at least, and that's just who Paul lists, who are eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. It was corporate. He appeared for so many. In fact, when Jesus died, the Bible tells us that the graves were opened and many came back to life. The resurrection of one created the resurrection of many. There was an instantaneous illustration in the natural of what God was doing through the resurrection in the spiritual as many came back to life. It's wonderfully corporate. In other words, it's for everybody. It's for all of us. We get to do this together, right? We get to celebrate together today. There's something about gathering, and yet the resurrection is intensely personal. As we journey through John chapter 20, we see separate incidents of faith, right? We see John believe when he sees the grave close. We see Mary believe when her name is spoken. We see the other disciples believe when Jesus appears in the upper room and comes inside the locks and shows them his scars. We see Thomas believe when he reaches out and touches the scars for himself. If we had the time to go around the room today, 
You'd be amazed at how each person has a unique story of coming to belief in Jesus. How our God pursued each and every one of us. How our God had a plan for each and every one of us to meet Jesus. And while the story is for all, God beautifully invites each of us into our own personal encounter with Jesus. And we see it happen for us right here in John chapter 20. Fast forward 40 days, I told you the Holy Spirit was going to come, and these same men who cowered and locked themselves in a room are going to spill out into the streets and begin to proclaim Jesus, and 3,000 people are going to get saved in one day. Well, that happens in Acts chapter 2, and it was that slow disciple Peter who was chosen to preach. He wasn't the captain of the track team, but he was the one who got the opportunity to preach on the day of Pentecost. And in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. My prayer today is that someone who doesn't know Jesus would be cut to the heart today. That something would grab you, that the Holy Spirit would convict you and say, this is for you. This isn't just for others. This isn't just for people who need a crutch. This is for all of us, but it's specifically for you. They were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? How do we respond to this? How do we move towards Jesus now that we know what he's done for us? Verse 38, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says this 2,000 years ago, the promise is for you and for your children and for all. Everybody say all. all. For all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. On the day of Pentecost, 2,000 years ago, as the Holy Spirit draws 3,000 people to surrender to discipleship in Jesus, he also causes Peter to prophesy about you and about me. All who were far off. God was thinking about you. When Jesus died, he was thinking about you. When Jesus rose, he was thinking about you. When the church was created, he knew you would need Jesus, and he had a plan for you to personally Meet him. I love the resurrection because it's wonderfully corporate and yet it's intensely personal. Secondly, I love the resurrection because it's completely exclusive and yet it's radically inclusive. Jesus, before he died, in fact, probably right around a week before he died, in John chapter 14, he says this. He answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus marks a line in the sand. He says, there may be other messiahs who tell you they can save you. There may be other leaders who come and try to proclaim things, but you need to know I'm the only one. Not an easy thing for us to accept in our rational minds, right? How can there only be one? How can there only be one who can save? Why wouldn't God send multiple, but God has only sent his son once to die for us? And the amazing thing is once was enough. That's all that it took was for Jesus to die once, for one sacrifice to be good enough for all. So the gospel is completely exclusive. No other gods, no other messiahs, no other leaders, no other sacrifice, no other way. I can't get there on my own. I can't be good enough. I can't follow enough rules. I can't give enough money. There's no possible way for me to get to heaven except through Jesus. But it's also radically inclusive. 
Romans 10, 13 puts it this way. The Bible says this in numerous times in different ways. It says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The old translation, the King James says, whosoever. And that's not a word we use very much, but I, but I like it in this context, man. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Who's whosoever? That's you. You're a whosoever. If you choose to call upon the name of the Lord, so it's radically exclusive, only one way, only one option, only one Savior will get you to heaven, and yet it's radically inclusive. Whosoever, anyone, it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how much education you have. It doesn't matter what sin you have in your past. Remember, the first to testify to the risen Lord had been a prostitute who met Jesus. It doesn't matter what your life has been. It doesn't matter what mistake you just made. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter how, what ethnicity you are, what language you speak. None of that matters. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That means you the person next to you, the person you don't like, the person you love, and everyone in between has the opportunity to call on the name of the Lord. Third reason why I love the resurrection is because it is historically anchored, yet eternally timeless. It's historically anchored. I told you uh, Bible scholars have, have studied and researched and have narrowed it down to a very few number of dates when it possibly could have happened. I think the best argument is April 7th, uh, AD 30, that may not be the exact date, but uh, based on the study and the research I've seen, it makes the most sense that it would have fallen on that date. In fact, there are those who would argue, and I believe that they're correct, that the resurrection of Jesus is the best proven fact in all of antiquity. In other words, there's more witnesses, more accounts, more details given more close to the event of the resurrection of Jesus than anything we have for, for thousands of years before this up until probably sometime in the 15 or 1600s when history got a little bit more defined. Man, there was no event in ancient human history with near the reports as the resurrection of Jesus. But it's not just the reports, it's the impact Look at the way the world was flipped upside down. The gospel went from a group of 120 people in the upper room on the day of Pentecost to spreading across Asia very fast. It spread into Africa almost immediately after the resurrection. It spread into Europe just a few years later. The gospel spread across continents, across the world, changed cultures, radically made differences. If you study world history, any time that the gospel arrived in an area and it was Received, the treatment of the women in that place radically changed. Women went from being treated as property to being treated as equals. Now, it was a process, and it didn't happen as quickly as it should have, and women are still mistreated in a lot of places where people believe in Jesus. But if you compare places that have received the gospel with places who have not received the gospel, the treatment of women is drastically different. Why? Because the resurrection changes everything. We can look into science. We can look into history. We can look into relationships. We can look at so many aspects of the world, and we see drastic change when the resurrection is accepted. It's powerful. It changes things. The resurrection turned the world upside down. It is historically anchored. We can trace the impact across the world as the good news of Jesus has spread, and yet... It's eternally timeless. 
The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to live in us today, the Holy Spirit. The same blood of Jesus that rescued Peter and John and the rest from their sins 2,000 years ago has the power to rescue you and me from my sins today. In fact, even as Jesus at the end of our passage in John chapter 20 encounters Thomas, he says, Thomas, come put your fingers in my scars. Come put your hand in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas, poor guy known as Doubting Thomas, makes this beautiful statement of faith. He says, my Lord and my God. Jesus looks at him and he says, because you have seen me, you have believed. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 2,000 years ago, When my Savior rose from the dead and he appeared to Thomas sometime around a week after the resurrection, maybe a little bit longer than that, Jesus spoke a blessing over you. Did you catch that? Read it again. Jesus prophesied a blessing for you and for me 2,000 years ago. He said, Thomas, because you've seen me, you have believed. And that's a good thing. Thomas was saved. And by the way, Thomas, who gets looked down on upon a lot, Thomas went out and was a great apostle who spread the gospel, who told many about Jesus. This was a radical transformation in this man. He didn't doubt anymore. He laid down his life for the gospel. Thomas is a hero of the faith. But he says, look, because you've seen me, you believed. But I want you to know there's people coming. They're going to believe even without seeing. They're going to hear the story. And the Holy Spirit is going to convict them. And they're going to receive me as their king, as their Lord, as their Savior, as their God. And I want you to know there's a blessing coming for them. Because they've believed me without even laying eyes on me. I don't know about you. I haven't seen Jesus face to face yet. But I've seen him do some amazing things. I've seen him do some undeniable things in my life and in the lives of others. I've been blessed to receive the story of the resurrection and believe. And Jesus says, there's a blessing for me because I've believed without seeing. Most of you in this room, you've already believed without seeing. You never laid eyes on Jesus either, and yet something has happened that's compelled you to say, yes, I'm trusting this one for my eternity. I'm staking my life on the fact that Jesus has risen from the grave, that he is no longer dead, that he is my Lord and my God. Perhaps this morning there's someone worshiping with us online, maybe even in the room. You haven't taken that step yet. You haven't given your life to Jesus. You haven't believed upon him. I want you to know that he loves you, that he died for you, that he sacrificed his life so that you could be reunited to relationship with him. And I want you to know he's got a blessing for you if you'll choose to believe. If that's you, I believe the Holy Spirit is already working on your heart, is already wooing you and calling you and compelling you to say yes Choose Jesus as your Lord.